Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another edition of Business Matters with me, your host, Alameen Templeton, on this wonderful day of Yom al Atulata. Yes, it's Tuesday already. My, how time is flowing, how time is fleeting. This time and next week, inshallah, where will we be getting ready for Tarawih Salah? Alhamdulillah! Alhamdulillah! The masajid are going to be full again that night. Such a wonderful thing to see, you know. It kind of like makes you think, what are we missing out in the rest of the year? Where do all these guys come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that time of the year again. It's a time for the hunger and a time for the feasting. Get a little bit hungry during the day and then we feast at night. We feast on Noor. Nighttime is a wonderful time to make Ibadah during Ramadan. Wow. But nighttime Ibadah during Ramadan is unlike any Ibadah during the rest of the year. At least that's the way it seems to be for me. It, you just kind of like get this energy and can just keep on going and going and going and going. Three o'clock in the morning comes along and you're still hungry for Quran. It's fantastic. Alhamdulillah. Well, there's been all kinds of other things going on in South Africa today. And uh, let's just go and have a look at uh, uh, the tale of the tape, as they say. The tale of the formal economy in South Africa. The formal economy in South Africa. The corporate economy in South Africa. How are the corporations doing? I wonder if we can get a human uh, economy in South Africa. I suppose, you know, in many ways, the informal economy is a clan economy. It's a family economy. It's not an individual economy. It's a family economy, the poor economy, the informal economy. The informal economy is always dependent on help, people helping each other. And the informal economy, if it is a family, extended family economy, uh, then, uh, yeah, it's probably the more efficient economy. Uh, because your, your, your basic costs are shared and your living costs are shared. You know, you're living out of your brother's pocket and your uncle's pocket and your father's pocket. And, his, and they, of course, are all living out of your pocket. You know, there's always arguments about who's got my drill and who's got my lawnmower and who's got the, you know, when a ruin, you've got a really good family ties. There's always arguments about these things. Allah Ta'ala gives us family because, you see, family is very different from friends. Family is very different from friends. You know, you can just ditch your friends when they annoy you. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. You can't do that with your family. Allah Ta'ala gives us family to keep our hearts soft, you know. Because you, you give so much. You give so much. And then they betray you. They steal. They rob. They lie. And you hate them. And you want to have nothing to do with them and your heart hardens. And then, you know, the years go by and you see the faces and the heart, you know, forgiveness enters in and your heart softens. So your family does that to you. It squeezes your heart and it softens your heart and it hardens your heart and it softens your heart. It gives you exercise. Makes you emotionally fit. That's what family does. Family. A basis for the economy, extended family economy, will lower, will lower living costs and will raise living standards. It will mean that a country can afford to move to a lower wage potential and so, through cooperation, is able to compete with other nations. 
or maybe maybe instead in the new world, perhaps there won't be competition between nations. The measure of success of nations will be determined by their measure of cooperation with other nations. Now, if you look at the way America is going, the way China is going, hmm, uh, well, not like uh, China's, uh, you know, it's, it's always easy to, to bash America over the head with a big stick that it carries around all the time. Uh, but China, yeah, two million Uyghurs in internment camps, re-education. Can you imagine that? The Chinese communists who had such cultural cringe that they had to go and bother and borrow um, like uh, an an intellectual fraud from the West. Capitalism and communism, they're like uh, the two-headed monster. Uh, China went and had to go and and borrow that from the West and then try and like uh, impose it uh, on itself. You know, I reckon, you know, Stick with what you know, China, and and uh, leave the leave the nonsense, Western nonsense. I mean, look where they are now. It's supposed to be a communist state, uh, but in actual fact, it seems to be more capitalist than the United States. Uh, many of the things that would not have been allowed by Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, in uh, the uh, Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, that ended up killing. Millions of people starving them to death because of economic theory. But like the British, you know, in India in the 1840s and 50s. Bengal famine. Huge big famines across India. All because of intellectual theory, you know. And when people die, instead of feeling sympathy, people say, Oh, well, you see, you weren't competitive enough. Or they say things like, Ah, you see, the fittest survive. Ah, they say that's evolution. Oh, that's market forces. It isn't. A lot of adolescents crime into community only because they don't take care of their poor. And that's it. Zakat, simple. Hmm? 1.5% of your income, or no, no, not of your income, of your, of, your, of your stored wealth. That's all it requires, really, seriously. And while they're also that and, and a move away from big state uh, politics, which is, of course, only possible if you change your organizational structure in your economy from a corporation to a clan. Mm. Oh, well, anyway, enough of that. Let's go back to where we were talking about the tail of the tape. What is the tail of the tape saying today? Well, the tail of the tape is saying very mixed signals. The JSE is down, uh, but the RAND is up. Well, maybe it's uh, international investors uh, taking profits, taking RAND profits there, uh, you know. Uh, yay, the RAND's gone up. We can go and cash in our single stock futures. We've been holding them. What are single, single stock futures? Well, it's like uh, it allows you to invest in, uh, in a country's uh, interest rate uh, as well as the underlying stock. You forego the dividend in the, in, in, uh, the interest of taking the interest rate. The interest rate is far more uh, predictable than the, than the dividend. Well, it also depends on which companies you're investing in. And a good time to cash out is when the RAND goes up. So anyway, today the RAND is slightly up against all currencies. Um, it's on 14.30 to the dollar, 18.49 to the pound, and 15.99 to the euro. Yeah, so anyway, um, probably building up ground ahead of the uh, in ahead of the elections. People are talking about yeah, but now will the will the rand get a nice little post-election bounce? Uh, Bloomberg's claiming that. Uh, well, in actual fact, uh, the tail of the tape says after most elections in South Africa, the rand has gone down, but only slightly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, whether or not elections uh, have a major effect on economic confidence, 
is a matter for debate. Uh, gold price today, hmm, still very boring, uh, 1,279 Rand 05. I don't expect to see much happening with the gold price in the near future. But then again, you know, the market is always full of surprises, isn't it? Uh, right, anyway, uh, the Rogues Gallery, the JSE's Rogues Gallery, the most viewed chairs today, Steinoff. In first place, as usual, EOH in second place. Wow, it's amazing how EOH has like stayed over there. It's one of the biggest IT um, and uh, and uh, software and hardware maintenance and uh, servicing companies in South Africa. Sort of like taking over the role of Dimension Data. Now there's talk about Dimension Data um, guys from Europe where they want to come over here. It's after Dimension Data was taken over by that big Japanese company. His name slips in my mind at the moment. They actually talking about coming to South Africa and relaunching Dimension Data according to the old way that it was done. Uh, well, you know, in the old days when Dimension Data was taken off, EOH didn't exist. So, uh, you know, whether or not uh, Dimension Data will be able to uh, take business away from EOH, I suppose, is really the main thing. Not whether or not the old Dimension Data um, uh, corporate philosophy will work again. Uh, it's a very, very different environment nowadays. Uh, EOH, well, uh, it hasn't been hit to the same extent that uh, Dimension Data was when Cisco decided that uh, Dimension Data was a major retailer of Cisco products. Cisco said, oh, I'm sorry, uh, but we're going to start selling our products cheaper than we're selling them to you. And as a result, people started buying Cisco Direct and Dimension Data fell in its face very hard after that, I must say. It took a very long time for it to recover. I don't know if it ever really actually did. Um, yeah, so EOH is there in second place. Uh, Sibania is in third place. And Bluetail, oh, Bluetail is making a reappearance. Um, that's the uh, the company uh, owned by that uh, that, that um, Bears billionaire, the, the 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 reclusive Bears billionaire, whose name also kind of like slips my mind at the moment. Uh, Blue Tail, uh, supposedly one day maybe going to um, take over Celsi, uh, maybe not. Uh, well, it's uh, down 4.6% today, so it looks like the maybe nots are, are gaining on the maybe woobies. Uh, Sibania is down 2.9%, and EOH is also down 2.9%. So it looks as though uh, second, third, and fourth place in the most few chairs on ShareNet today are all in the rogues gallery for all the wrong reasons. Uh, well, I suppose if you're in the Rose Gallery for bad reasons, then those are the right reasons. No, please, we're starting to talk in circles now. I mean, it's time to move on. Right, fine. Okay, so the top major movers on the JSE, the big winners today, RCL, that's Rainbow Chicken Foods, PNR Foods, ooh, mm, all coming up at the same time. Yeah, Consumer-focused, both big gainers, up 2.4% each. Uh, into prop, uh, that's an uh, overseas rate, I think it's uh, invested in Britain, uh, is up 1.83%. Uh, Raynet, uh, yeah, well, that's up 1.69%. And Standard Bank up 1.28%. Anglo Platinum down 5.85%. Mm, Implat down 5.32%. Anglo Gold down 4.17%. Harmony down 3.28%. And Sibania down 295 I suppose... Uh, as it's, uh, it's the main flag carrier of the mining industry, you could say that Sabanya um, uh, should have been taking the biggest hit, but you could say it has already taken the biggest hits and is in actual fact uh, 
Uh, well, only the fifth biggest loser uh, today. Uh, and uh, there you see all of them resources companies, mining companies, obviously uh, a, take, a position being taken ahead of wage negotiations. Um, really not, uh, not lining up for uh, nice wage negotiations in the platinum sector. You've got Amku, who received a very big bloody nose from Sibania. I'm sure Neil Froneman is like a sh- getting their handshakes from all his friends all around. Uh, Amku has been removed as a majority union on Sibanya gold mines. Now it remains to be seen if Sibanya can do the same thing uh, on its platinum mines uh, and uh, whether or not that Lonman takeover is going to take place and for how much it's going to take place is Sibanya downgrading uh, its, its, its offer last week. Um, Wanting to move uh, into the platinum sector, but Simania is going to be taking over all of the all of all, all of the the platinum junk that Anglo Platinum and Impala Platinum are leaving behind them as they move over to shallower and uh, thicker ore bodies that they can excavate using the same kind of underground excavators that they use in coal mines, where you have that. Um, they, they they basically carve out. Uh, it's a pillar and Pillar and Kevin or something like that uh, mining where uh, you you just go and mine out a huge big cavern and you leave spaces, pillars, regular pillars along the way as you go mining out. And uh, so it's a huge, big, spacious environment. It's far safer. It's better ventilated. And there's far fewer risks and injuries involved. Plus, you cut down your costs and, uh, and your profits uh, shoot through the roof, uh, which means that... Um, uh, Neil Froneman is always going to be um, uh, the third cousin of the uh, of the platinum sector. He's always going to be the poor cousin. He's always going to be struggling. But uh, let me tell you, there's always there's a friend of mine whose father always used to say, "Where there's muck, there's brass." Aye, well, Neil Froneman understands that. Where there's muck, there's brass, and he's after his brass. Uh, but whether or not his heavy-handed tactics uh, are going to win for him and win for the wider sector remains to be seen. Because you see, Amco will be coming out of, uh, it really is under attack at the moment. Uh, it's, uh, the, the Labour Department is trying to deregister it as a trade union, saying it's not engaging in trade union activity. Well, that's quite amazing. It strikes me as being the most active trade unionist kind of trade union that we have in the country. Now the government is trying to shut them down. Well, you know, they're not going to be able to shut them down before the wage negotiations in the platinum sector take place. And all of AMCU's members are going to be very aware of that. There's going, there must be hostility and animosity building on the platinum mines already. And as for um, competition between National Union of Mine Workers and AMCU for membership, now that AMCU has been downgraded as uh, it's not the majority union at Sibania. Uh, however, Neil Farnham very cleverly uh, brought that move right towards the end of what was nearly a five-month strike, four-month strike uh, at his mines. Uh, by then, uh, workers were, you know, basically on their last legs of four or five months without any salary. Um, so, are you an AMCU member or are you an NUM member? Well, you know, AMCU hasn't taken us anywhere. There you see, Joseph Mutunjua, you've got to learn. Bread and butter issues will always trump principle. You know, in the end, if you have a really long struggle and you get to the end of the struggle and you don't have anything to show for it, you're not going to be a very popular man. 
uh, when you decide to go on a strike, you need to go uh, embark on that strike with the firm belief that you are in actually going to succeed. Neil Furneman said, no, you're not going to succeed. And he built his walls. And, uh, well, <clears throat> Neil Furneman has won, you could say, uh, in terms of Sibania and uh, wage negotiations there. Joseph Tunjo are still going for that 2013 wage demand of 12,500 rand minimum per worker. Didn't get it now, didn't get it in 2013. So, is he basically flogging a dead horse? Is it time for Joe to go? Neil Froneman certainly would seem to think so. Uh, but I don't think so. Um, I reckon the South African trade union sector would be losing uh, one of the few bright lights that still remain. Uh, most of them have sold out and they're just little um, management pets. Trade um, National Union of Mine Work has been a prime example. Uh, so, yeah, my um, will the platinum miners. I mean, Anglo Platinum has been treating its miners really well. Uh, you know, um, maybe maybe it'll just be all fine fellow, hail, fine fellow, well met. Uh, thank you very much. And there'll be, you know, half a morning's uh, negotiations and a wage deal will be finalized. Neil Froneman will then really be the hero of the gold mining sector. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Of course, um, National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, is also very big uh, on the mines. Um, that's because metal workers, you know, construction, headgear, and they're always there mining and welding and fixing things. And, you know, there's all kind of metal that gets used in mining. So, you know, metal workers are there in full force. They're not doing any mining, but they are doing equipment, capital equipment, uh, manufacture, maintenance, and so on. Uh, and the NUM has pulled out of Casato because it accused Casato of being a sellout uh, trade union umbrella body about three years ago. It's formed its own political party of participating in the elections for the first time this year. That means that uh, NUMSA is most definitely going to have a political uh, axe to grind. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, very interesting, very interesting in the mining sector. Um, Okay, so uh, I guess that's all All that we've got time for the tale of the tape for today. Uh, let's get on to some wider news. Hmm. Less than two weeks before what is said to be the most competitive election of the democratic era, South African consumers are about to be hit by the second highest fuel prices on record, a little more than 2% off the peak reached in late 2018. Price of a litre of unleaded 95 octane will jump 54 cents to 16 rand 67. Ah, my eyes are watering just looking at that. And that's going to come in on Wednesday. Uh, that's according to the Central Energy Fund. Of course, this is Nasada uh, timing, so you've got up until Wednesday night to the midnight uh, to get some cheap fuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last month, this wasn't cheap fuel. This was expensive fuel. Now, this expensive fuel has become the cheap fuel. Oh boy, you know, you're chasing from one thing to another thing and never getting anything. That's what we're doing. Citing higher international fuel prices, the Central Energy Fund says um, uh, fuel prices have um, trumped any kind of small gains by the RAND in the period under review. Prices jumped to 1708 in October 2018. So we're not very far from that, are we? We're kind of like one month away from it, you kind of like feel, don't you? And that is despite the news coming out today saying oil prices fell, thanks to Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump said that he had called up his friend uh, MBS, what's his name, 
in uh, uh, Arabia there. Uh, yeah, he called up MBS and said, "Come on, man, we need uh, we need oil prices to come down, man." Um, uh, so yeah, you know, he wants to look like the good guy, but in actual fact, America is the bad guy in terms of the oil prices, because uh, even when um, OPEC cuts back on supply in order to try and push up the prices, the American uh, fracking producers just pump out that oil. They just pump it out and pump it out. They're pumping out that oil as fast as they can. They've made America completely oil independent of the rest of the world. That means that America can really enjoy uh, not having to import fuel and uh, lose all that money bleeding out of its economy like we have to do. Uh, and uh, the rest of the world then really suffers under high oil prices. So that means that America's competitiveness relative to the rest of the world increases. It's a bit like, uh, you know, backbiting someone. Uh, have, you, have you ever considered why would someone want to backbite someone? Uh, you know, um, especially if the, the person being backbitten doesn't hear anything. What in effect actually happens is the person doing the backbiting has his status by uh, a shimmerer. Um, by an illusion. He has his status raised among the people that he's speaking with, you see. Because what he does is he lowers the perception of the other person's status. And when that person's status is lowered among his uh, audience, then his status is by comparison relatively raised. But in actual fact, what's in actual fact happening is the backbiter is in actual fact sinking into the mud. Uh, but anyway, right, so this is Donald Trump. He says, yeah, no, we, 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 we want, uh, we want uh, a lower oil prices around the world. Donald Trump doesn't want lower, lower, lower oil prices around the world. Donald Trump would like to have more, maybe some lower oil prices in the United States, but he likes to see his oil buddies making a lot of money. But more, more importantly, primarily from, uh, you know, a, a big picture perspective, uh, when oil prices are high around the world, and the, then the United States is happy. Not because the United States has become more competitive, but because it has raised its relative status by making other, by other countries less competitive. So, just like a backbiter, this is the role that the United States is playing in the world at the moment. Other oil-producing nations, Britain being uh, the foremost among them, the most desperate among them as well, because the North Sea oil is uh, basically running dry, and has been running dry for quite a while, uh, which is the reason why Britain has been like, you know, the little laptop of the United States every time they come up with an, another idea to go and kill Muslims. Britain is right there, you know. You know, the Labour Party. Tony Blair was the leader of the Labour Party when they went into Iraq and started all of this nonsense, when they went into Afghanistan and started all this nonsense. You'd think that the Labour Party would have been so ashamed of all of that. So like, you know, like uh, Germany got rid of the Nazi Party. Why didn't Britain get rid of the Labour Party? Well, because, like, you know, they still got the Conservative Party, which is even worse than the Labour Party. Um, and it's in power at the moment. Can you believe it? Now, this is supposed to be democracy. Supposed to be rational human beings making a decision. Well, anyway, uh, so yeah, um, Donald Trump says, uh, you know, he's called, he spoke to Saudi Arabia, Tony like shouted loudly while his jet was flying over the country. Uh, he spoke to Saudi Arabia and others, the UAE, uh, about increasing oil flow. He says, all are in agreement. Oh, really? Well, let's go down a little way, shall we? Um, 
Russia will not immediately raise oil output after the United States end sanctions waivers for buyers of Iranian crude in May, President Vladim, Vladimir Putin said this weekend. Excuse me, I got a cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, don't know where that came from. Suddenly jumped out of. The, ah, well, there you see, it was uh, there's an announcement. We've got to go for uh, we've got to go for a uh, quick uh, advertising break. Inshallah, we'll be back in just a little while. You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah Wal Jamaah. alaikum, welcome back. Well, remember, if you want to phone in, the phone lines are open here in Lanasia. 010-001-004 Or you can WhatsApp us messages on 084-786-3132 084-786-3132 Right, now you, know, now you know the international markets are supposed to be based on supply and demand. You know, that determines the price and so on. Uh, well, the oil price isn't being determined by supply and demand. It's being determined by political um, vested interests, just as it was uh, back uh, when we saw that huge big uh, uh, prices peaking. I think it was around about $140, $150 a barrel. That was back in 2008. And why was it peaking? It wasn't peaking because of any um, shortage of oil in the market. It was peaking because of perceptions of oil shortages in the market. And those perceptions were being uh, ably massaged uh, by news agencies like Bloomberg and Reuters. And, uh, and uh, they, they were being massaged uh, using a, an economic theory which had popped up, which is called peak oil. I used to argue against peak oil all the time at the time. Uh, but anyway, uh, peak oil was eventually exposed as being just a lot of nonsense and hot air that had been dreamed up not by the oil industry, in actual fact, but by the Reserve Bank governors in the United States. Yeah, that's where peak oil uh, first emerged. Peak oil theory first emerged in um, the uh, not the federal U.S. Uh, not the Federal Reserve, the state reserve banks. That's where peak oil theory first started gaining popularity. That's in actual fact where it originated from, not from the oil industry. Uh, and uh, the the oil price only fell after Bloomberg foolishly uh, just before. No, not Bloomberg. Goldman Sachs. Just uh, same kind of people, really. Uh, Goldman Sachs, just before the 2008 American elections, predicted that the oil price was likely to hit $250 a barrel by the end of the year. That caused such a shock that people started looking into why the oil price had been going up, and suddenly the manipulators had to disappear very quickly because you had U.S. elections coming up. And suddenly the oil price fell down to, you know, boom, 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 like around about um, $40 a barrel. $35 a barrel, I think it even went down to. Can you imagine in 2011, uh, in 2000, it was at $11 a barrel? I reckon around about a fair price for a dollar of oil has been 25 and $35 a barrel. Given that uh, your cost of pumping it out of the ground is like less than $1 a barrel. Uh, so, you know, untreated crude oil should be sold for... Uh, well, depending on on the, on the quality, you get you get sweet crude and light crude and heavy crude, and you know, um, depending on the quality, it should be between twenty five twenty five to thirty five dollars a barrel. I think it's a fair price, uh, but maybe eleven dollars a barrel is in actual fact a fair price. 
uh, and it's been the United States now. Uh, you see, like uh, j- j- just as much as uh, they did a suit to the United States to push up the oil price in previous years, so it's, it's still suiting it now because a, a, a United States doesn't have to import oil of its oil. Well, now it has to import none of its oil because fracking has has, has, has really filled up filled up all of the cracks. But even before fracking, the United States was in a privileged position in that it was an oil producer itself. Uh, I think it had to import maybe about 30% or 40% of its oil. Um, and so a relatively higher price would, would relatively hurt other nations more than it would the United States. Now the United States is also threatening sanctions against Iran, trying to remove oil out of the market and push the oil price up, just as much as it's also going to war with Venezuela and trying to take over the, last, the biggest uh, oil reserves in the world. Uh, and, of course, preventing Venezuela from selling any oil. Got a huge big uh, boycott and sanctions uh, against that South American country. And so um, and so we'll have to, um, you know, uh, now politically they are, in actual fact, removing oil from the market, but it isn't, it isn't a natural one. Uh, we're just going to go for a quick commercial break. We'll be back in just a moment. Well, there you go. Okay, um, uh, sorry about that. Uh, I had a bit of a moment. I, w- I was ill last week. I don't know if you noticed. I wasn't. I wasn't here on Monday and Tuesday last week. Uh, and I've got a little three-year-old girl I have to look after nowadays, and she sniffles and snuffles all day long. And, uh, oh, boy, well, anyway, when you get to your 50s, you find it, uh, you, you take it a bit longer to recover from these things as well. Well, alhamdulillah. Okay, so nowadays, um, again, it's not supply and demand. It's political manipulation of the market, which is still going on. The United States, sanctions against Iran and Venezuela have, of course, the additional advantage of pushing up the oil price, which means American oil dealers make a lot of money. It means that all of the other countries around the world have to pay a lot of money and so become less competitive, just as we're seeing here in South Africa. So, yeah, um, I mean, it's not just me that's saying so. Saxo Bank analyst Ole Hansen today said that we are dealing with a market that's not actually short of supply, but it is short due to politically motivated action. And we know how quickly that can be turned around if necessary. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, uh, ING Bank says they believe that Saudi Arabia will increase output as soon as May anyway, which they're planning to do. So, you know, oh, Donald Trump said, oh, they're about to raise oil prices. Well, I, I asked them to raise oil price, and they said yes. Oh, yes, you know, it looks like a real big wheeler and dealer, isn't he? But in actual fact, he's an evil manipulator. Um, just like any U.S. US um, president, he's a mass murderer as well. Just like any U.S. president, he's a mass murderer. Well, yeah, you know, even, even JFK. Yeah, very nice guy, you know, back at home. Um, Commerce Bank says uh, they believe the fall in prices just this morning is probably due to the situation of the futures market being currently overbought. 
Consequently, even small levels of uncertainty can spark a more marked price response. It's not just a Donald Trump moment. However, because the supply situation remains tight, a renewed price rise is probable. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Uh, but Russia says they're not going to immediately raise oil output, probably because Donald Trump has asked uh, Saudi Arabia to do so. Uh, Putin uh, said we have an agreement with OPEC to maintain production at a certain level, and this agreement is in force until July. So some people say in May, some people say in July, uh, unless, of course, Saudi Arabia is doing the dirty on all of its uh, on all of its partners. So now you know, oil oil is holding us to ransom, but there's something else uh, that's holding us to ransom, uh, and uh, that is water. But I suppose we've got to leave that for the news bulletin. Um, yeah, there's a a a, a massive. 54-hour water shutdown was planned for today by Rand Water. Gauteng, yeah, Rand Water. A 54-hour water shutdown was planned for today. And then they decided today that they weren't going to proceed with it. Hmm? Yeah. You were warned about that, weren't you? Yeah, well, in actual fact, the only city that told people that uh, the water shutdown isn't going to happen was a city that's unaffected by it. Joburg Water uh, issued its press statement saying, okay, the water shutdown today isn't going to happen. The 54-hour water shutdown isn't going to happen. Johannesburg City informed its residents who were going to be unaffected by the water shutdown. But everyone else that was going to be affected by the water shutdown hadn't been told. But now the water shutdown isn't going to happen. Uh, but we're told that it is going to come back. Uh, but we're not being told when it's going to come back. So it's like, like a big surprise, you know. It's a bit like a, a ESCOM um, a load shedding, you know. It's so like here in Indonesia. I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, you, 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 you get these load shedding schedules that get published in newspapers. I don't know. Maybe it actually increases uh, circulation, um, you know, like uh, like competitions, uh, spot the ball competitions used to do. Now they've got uh, yeah your 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 local area um, uh, uh, Eskom load shedding schedules. You kind of like look at these load shedding schedules, and they've got like a little square. Like you know, you can see you can see some guy has been trained in Excel. You know, um, goes in this. I once worked for South African tourism. Um, and every time, you know, South African tourism, uh, well, actually I wasn't working for South African tourism. I was working for a public relations company that was doing work for South African tourism. Well, in actual fact, I suppose you could say that I was working for the company that was doing uh, South African tourism's work. Um, and then we used to go around and uh, to South African tourism uh, like once a week uh, to your once a month. There'd be like a big a big kind of like book comparison meeting. You know, everyone would walk in there with Excel documents and, you know, people would put up their Excel document on the stage. Yeah, we've got these meetings planned over here and uh, this project currently, you know, and they've got color-coded projects and like like meeting-colored projects and like you've got columns all over the place. And, you know, it looks like a, um, uh, a technicolor measles outbreak has suddenly hit the whiteboard. Uh, and you kind of like sit there and look at this whole confusion kind of thing. And the only guy that knows what is going on uh, on the whiteboard is the guy whose actual presentation will be made at the moment. Everyone else kind of like sitting there looking like, you know, it's like, uh, uh, says, uh, like, join the dots, dots on my 
freckled face when I was five years old. I had so many freckles on my face. Um, you know, and you kind of like sitting there looking at you. Eventually, you know, when you're new to it, you're sitting there and you kind of like sitting, you're trying to figure it out, you're trying to figure it out. And then, then you know, you, you start looking around at everyone else in the room around this huge, big table. You know, there's about 50 guys there at the meeting. And um, no one else is in paying attention. And the guy that's talking on the on the whiteboard, um, he is, he's going on and he doesn't mind that no one's paying. He's been preparing this thing for like five years and he's coming, he's giving his presentation. And then, you know, then everyone else would draw out their Excel sheets and they'll show their, like, uh, their spotted measles uh, display and everyone, oh, that's very colorful and, yeah, oh, that's really nice. And, uh, no, you know, we'd eventually leave after two hours of uh, spotted measles technicolor comparisons and no one would know what anyone else had said at the meeting. But, you know, we'd shake each other's hands, slap each other on the back and call each other bra. Yeah, you know. Don't know what happened there because we, it was basically South African tourism. It's, uh, it's only about, like, you know, placing regular adverts in foreign newspapers or foreign publications or foreign websites um, uh, and and gain off on nice little trips every now and then. Uh, and, and that's what South African tourism is. It's, a, it's just a money-making. Well, it's not a money-making racket. It's a money-spending racket, and they're spending your money. Yeah, but anyway, they do it according to very nice kind of uh, little technicolor charts, and that's basically what uh, what uh, ESCOM's uh, load-shedding schedules look like when you, you know, you you go and buy the citizen uh, because uh, you you can't get it anywhere else. So the only reason I buy the citizen so I can get my my, my load schedules. Well, then actually you stop buying the citizen again because you can't understand the the the, the load shedding schedules. So, like I say, you know. So anyway, yeah, no water situation. It didn't happen today. We still have water. Well. Well, you know, in the kind of strange, kind of crazy, bumbling way that we go about managing our country, I suppose we can say thank God for that. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We still have water today. Don't know when they're going to cut it off, but, you know, really, you should be thankful. If you open the tap and there's water coming out, be thankful. Say a prayer to Allah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, well, I see that um, um, journalists are threatening to go on strike. Sure, it's amazing. That's amazing, you know. Their salaries are not getting paid as much and they, they're cutting staff and they're not giving bonuses and things. Yeah, well, that'll teach him a lesson. You know, they used to have a very active trade unionism uh, in journalism circles pre-1994. After 1994, they shut them down. And the journalists didn't mind because the journalists were getting paid fat salaries because, you see, what was happening was management was cutting down the staff levels, giving the remaining staff more work to do, Slowly but surely, like, you know, the the frog boiling in the pot, slowly heating it up and not noticing because you uh, can't notice changes in temperature gradual. So the frog boils to death. Now the journalists find themselves in that situation. Predatory um, uh, publishers taking over their organizations, cutting back on the dissemination of ideas, cutting back on the, the truth coming out of the publications, firing journalists who want to stand up for journalism. And the rest of the crowd that stayed behind uh, did nothing. Now TSAR Black Star employees, you know, that's Business Day, Sunday Times, you know, the, the, the basically the white media. Uh, they call themselves Black Star, but like it's basically the white media. Even, even City Press, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, the white media, uh, you know, now the staff there, like, you know, 20, 
how many 25 nearly 25 years yeah 25 years on at the weekend it was 25 years 25 years after democracy journalists have decided they're going to go on strike because they want more money well apparently 160 of them have uh, apparently uh yeah 160 journalists and they've issued a strike notice the first strike in south african democratic history by journalists is about to take place I'm actually watching this with a mixture of chagrin and uh, glee. Because I actually don't think, uh, you know, if you look at the kind of journalism they're producing, I I don't think journalists have got any backbones. How can they stand up for themselves, let alone the rest of the country? But anyway, they say that they've gone on strike and uh, they're determined to fight for their rights. Not going to fight for the rights of their readers, but, you know, when it comes to getting... um, uh, the money for themselves, apparently, then they are willing to go the extra mile. Well, alhamdulillah, here's a little suggestion uh, for the remainder of the show. I'm just going to read it out. It came across to me on Facebook. Um, uh, and uh, it seems to have been uh, handed out by an, an anonymous person. Uh, so I don't even know who I should say uh, wrote this thing. Um, I'm not saying that this is my idea of the way the government or the or the or the economy should be should be run or managed or changed, uh, but nevertheless, it just gets, it's just an interesting idea. So, so make of it what you will. I'm not saying I'm not giving this my blessing or something. or saying, yeah, you see, this is the way we must go. No, but this is uh, this is what they they're calling the patriotic retirement plan, following on. Um, uh, Tidham Awani's suggestion that all workers when they reach 55 must be forced to retire so that the, the youth can have a chance. And then Kasato fired back and said, well, then it's time for you to retire because you're 60 years old. Now, Futsek. Well, Tidham Awani not willing to follow his own advice, but nevertheless, here's someone who's made an interesting suggestion. Dear Mr. President, please find below our suggestion for fixing South Africa's economy. Instead of giving billions of rands to the government that will squander the money on lavish parties and unearned bonuses, use the following plan. You can call it the Patriotic Retirement Plan. There are about 10 million people over 50 in the workforce today. Pay each of them 2 million rand severance for early retirement with the following stipulations. They must retire. That's 10 million job openings immediately and unemployment is fixed straight away. They must buy a new car. 10 million cars ordered. Car industry fixed straight away. (coughs) They must either buy a house or pay off their mortgage. Housing crisis fixed. They must send their kids to school, college or university. There, the crime rate is fixed. They must buy 100 rands worth of alcohol or tobacco a week. There's your money in duty or taxes. Well, okay. Well, like I say, it's not my suggestion. It can't get any easier than that. I reckon you can cut out number five. Um, but maybe not. Why not? And the Nasara want to, I mean, you know, alcohol, I suppose, it's a bit like the lotter. It's a voluntary tax for the mathematically challenged. Yeah. And the more alcohol you drink, the more mathematically challenged you become. So it's a voluntary tax. Yeah, the lotto and alcohol. Voluntary taxes for the mathematically challenged. It can't get any easier than that. The writer says, P.S., if more money is needed, have all members of Parliament pay back their falsely claimed expenses and second home allowances. If you think this would work, please forward to everyone you know. Also, 
Let's put the pensioners in jail and the criminals in a nursing home. This way, the pensioners who have access to showers, hobbies and walks, and they'll receive unlimited free prescriptions, dental and medical treatment, wheelchairs, etc. They'll receive money instead of paying it out. They would have constant video monitoring, so they could be helped instantly if they fell or needed assistance, or at least they will not be slotted and growing old in a drafty uh, retirement village. Their bedding will be washed twice a week and all clothing will be ironed and returned to them. A guard will check in them every 20 minutes and bring their meals and snacks to their cell. They'll have family visits in a suite built for that purpose. They'll have access to a library, to a weight room, spiritual counseling, pool and education. Simple clothing, shoes, slippers, pajamas and legal aid will be free on request. Private secure rooms for all with an exercise outdoor yard with gardens. Each senior would have a PC, a television or radio and daily phone calls. There would be a board of directors to hear complaints and the guards would have a code of conduct which would be strictly adhered to. The criminals would get cold food. They would be left all alone and unsupervised. Lights off at 8 p.m. and showers once a week. They live in a tiny room. They pay a thousand rand plus a week. Have no hope of ever getting out. Hmm? <laughs> Obviously written by by someone who's around about the same age as me. Think about this. More points of contention. Yeah, obviously a retiree with a lot of time in his hands. Eh? Cows. Is it just me? Or does everyone else find it amazing that during the mad cow epidemic, our government could track a single cow born in the Rafir Sunday end almost three years ago, right up to the store where she slept? And they even track their calves to their stalls. But they are unable to locate 5 million illegal immigrants wandering around our country. Maybe we should give each illegal immigrant coming across the border a cow. And then we'll set the SBCA on it. <laughs> well, there you go. Ah, well. Okay. Uh, let's uh, just uh, a few more uh, news, uh, news snippets uh, before going. Top officials, politicians and businessmen of the ANC are facing tax claims of more than 250 million rand on income earned from Basasa, the services company at the heart of widespread corruption scandal, the heart of the, the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. Um, the South African Revenue Services has conducted preliminary investigations that may lead to charges of undeclared income, overstated expenses and other misrepresentations against members of the ANC. Uh, those on the SARS list uh, include Dudu Mayeni, that's the chairperson of ousted President Jacob Zuma's charitable foundation mm, and former SAA chief executive, a ruiner of, uh, the, of the, uh, the state carrier, Minister of Environmental Affairs Nomvula Mokonyani, former National Prosecuting Authority prosecutors Nomkobo Jiba and Lawrence Mruebi. Yeah, they were, they were fired last week. AMC lawmaker Vincent Smith and former Correctional Services Commissioner Zach Modise, mm, the guy in charge of the prisons. You see, put him in an old age home. Ah, I reckon that's a great idea. Put him in an old age home. Angelo Agrizi, Bosasa's chief operating officer, told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that's probing corruption during Zuma's rule, the company paid 300,000 rands a month to the former leader's charitable foundation in return for protection from prosecution. Uh, isn't that very nice? Well, hmm. actually, you know what? I think Angela Greasy should also be chucked into an old age home. Some, uh, some in uh, Cape Town I've heard of really terrible things happening there. Uh, there's a brother who does it in the Alhanka Masjid in Lenezia every year. 
And uh, yeah, he's uh, had one leg shot off uh, a few years ago in a robbery. Uh, so he's got one leg. But he's a, he's a, he's a bright and cheerful guy, uh, despite his advancing years and advancing problems. Uh, and he is basically, because he's mobile, he can hop around on one leg and crutches, uh, he's got to do the bathing, man and woman. Uh, because, you know, you reach a certain stage in your life where you're unable to look after yourself anymore. Uh, yeah, and you know, they, 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 they don't have uh, nurses looking after them. They don't have care workers or caregivers. They're basically left on their own. And when that happens, you know, you spend the whole night uh, in uh, the bodily waste because you can't get out of bed and there's no one to hear you call. That's a terrible way to go. Really, 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 really. May Allah have mercy on the elderly in this country. May Allah have mercy on our parents. Ya Allah, have mercy on my parents for indeed they fed me and clothed me and cared for me when I was young. Well, another interesting thing out today, and that's Huawei, uh, which is uh, basically in the vanguard of the rollout of 5G around the world. United States, Britain and France, of course, becoming highly alarmed at all of this because uh, they've been hoping to use 5G to be able to spy at will on anyone, anytime, anywhere in the world. And they said, Huawei is going about it. So now they say, no, no, you can't use Huawei because they want to, they, they'll be able to spy on us. You can't trust these people. Uh, Huawei shot back and said the only reason the United States doesn't want us uh, in its country is because then the, the United States won't be able to spy on everyone. So get Huawei and the United States won't be able to spy on you. Um, well, Britain then uh, uh, last week announced that they'd come up with a compromise and uh, they say that uh, in actual fact on, on non-strategic parts of our network we will allow Huawei. Because basically, you see, if you don't have 5G now, you're going to fall behind the curve. You fall behind the curve, it's going to be very difficult to get into the front again. So Britain doesn't want to lose its place. It's hoping Brexit isn't going to make it fall calamitously. But it knows that if it doesn't have 5G, it most assuredly will. So Britain has said, we don't care that we're US's laptop, lap, lap dog. We are going to go with 5G and Huawei simply because we have to. So now the United States has shot back and it said that, hey, you know what? Uh, if you go with Huawei, we're not going to be your friends. Uh, we're we're go, we're going to pull out. Uh, you, you've got this thing they call the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network, which is basically the Red, White, and Blue Alliance: um, United States, Britain, uh, and France. Uh, two others in it as well. Uh, Maybe it may even be China and Russia. Uh, mm, um, Let's see, it's United States, Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Uh, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. This is supposedly the Five Eyes Alliance, and it also includes uh, France and Britain. So, um, the United States says, we, we, if, if, you, if you go with Huawei, uh, you're going to become our enemy. It says it's, it does not see any distinction between core and non-core parts of 5G networks. And it says we'll reassess sharing information with any allies which use equipment made by China's Huawei. It is the United States position that putting Huawei or any other trustworthy vendor in any part, untrustworthy vendor in any part of the 5G telecommunications network is a risk. 
So, you know, when American uh, technology is better than the rest of the world, you've got to pay through your nose. When the rest of the world is better than America's, then you're not allowed to use it. Okay, well, we'll leave you with that thought. Jazakumullah for joining us. I make dua that whatever trade and activity you got up to today has been profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.